And this is a really important moment for Latter-day Saint women in standing up and finding their voice in a public way, speaking out in defense of their faith and of their families and of their way of life in the face of national opposition. Hello and welcome to Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Today we're going to be discussing chapter 25 of Saints Volume 2, The Dignity of Our Calling. And here to talk with us today, we're very excited to welcome Lisa Olson-Tate, who's a general editor of Saints Volume 2. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, Lisa, in our previous episode, we had learned a little bit about a movement that became known as the Godbyites after a man by the name of William Godby. And at the end of our last episode, William and his friend, associate Elias, were excommunicated. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this movement, this so-called the new movement, was all about and what its repercussions were for the early saints in Utah? Yeah, there were really two related but somewhat distinct threads within what we call the Godbeite movement. Part of it was an opposition or a challenge to Brigham Young and the leadership of the church. Part of it was an opposition and a challenge to the integration of the spiritual and the temporal in the way that it was playing out with Brigham Young and the saints and the leadership of the church at the time. And in particular, the cooperative movement, which I know you've talked about in previous chapters, where Brigham was really trying to get the saints to work together and to maybe forego some of the more competitive elements of the economy, of capitalism as it was practiced at the time, and work together for the good of the community to make sure that no one is left behind, and also to kind of create a boundary around the community in terms of doing business with each other and not supporting what they thought of as the outside elements that were more antagonistic to the church. And William Godby and others of his friends who were businessmen and who were really, I think they were really sincerely committed to the church at one time, and they wanted to see the economy of Utah develop. And they felt that the cooperative movement was going to hold that back and that some of the counsel that Brigham Young was given was going to hold back the development of the economy, which they thought would be more beneficial overall than these kind of cooperative boundary building moves. So that was part of the opposition that came to be known as the Godbyite movement. But then there was a spiritual element to it as well. And as I'm sure you talked about before, Godby and Harrison and some of their friends became really interested in what was known as spiritualism. Yeah, this was really fascinating to me because I didn't realize that members of the church had any connection to that. But at, yeah. at least in this case, there were a few that became interested in the, the larger spiritualism movement. Yeah. Which I guess shouldn't be surprising because even though they were off in Utah, they didn't live in a vacuum and they were aware of and affected by the currents and the context that they lived in. 
at first, with Godby and Harrison and others, their participation in these seances, these efforts to contact spirits on the other side, seemed to have had a particular Latter-day Saint bent to them because they believe that they're talking to Joseph Smith and Heber C. Kimball. And so they're, they're kind of looking at spiritualism within a Latter-day Saint framework. But increasingly, it seems to be that it kind of takes on a life of its own. And that spiritualist bent to what they're doing kind of overtakes the more Latter-day Saint element. Lisa, we read that these two leaders of this new movement were excommunicated. What happens next? Well, they publish some statements in their magazine defending themselves, but they continue to lead this movement and it kind of begins to take on a life of its own. Brigham Young and the leaders of the church are inclined to not engage too strenuously in debate about it and feel kind of to to let them do their thing. So Brigham Young, um, we learn in the book that after this has sort of all come about, he heads south on a bit of a preaching tour. He's going to visit all of the settlements and providing counsel to them as he goes. And it kind of made me smile a little bit to think, you know, what are you going to do if the prophet comes to your town? Like you're going to roll out the red carpet, right? Well, of course. You're going to make it as nice as you possibly can and metaphorically kill the fatted calf and bring the very best and while Brigham seems to appreciate it, he, he also has another perspective. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, we should say, first of all, that it wasn't unusual for Brigham to make these trips south. This wasn't the first time this had happened. And he, especially in the winter, would go down to St. George, like a lot of us do now, right? Spend the cold months down there where it's a little bit warmer. And so probably, in my mind, It's not that this is the first time this has happened, but perhaps because of all of the thinking and preaching that he's been doing about this cooperative movement, about the way the saints are living, that maybe he sees these things in a different light than he had seen them before. And what he sees is that in these big celebrations and fancy dinners and the things that the saints do to welcome him— he sees that it's kind of a burden on the women, that they're cooking and preparing all these fancy foods and meals, and it's very time-consuming, and that's keeping them from the meetings where they could be receiving spiritual instruction and spiritual uplift. He also, of course, being Brigham Young and very practical, he sees it in practical terms as well. He sees that it's a burden, as he thinks about it, on the husbands, because it's a drain on the resource of the family to spend. And and think about these communities where many people are living pretty close to the subsistence level. We're talking about people who don't have a lot. And so when he comes into town and they are literally killing the fatted calf, which might be the only calf that they have in order to put on this big production dinners for him and the other leaders, he sees that as a real problem and a real misuse of resources. Mm And so he thinks about that (laughs) in Brigham's style and comes up with a plan. Let's listen to a little quote here from the book where Brigham gives some instruction and calls Mary Isabella Horn to a new work. Sister Horn, I am going to give you a mission to begin when you return to your home, the mission of teaching retrenchment among the wives and daughters of Israel, Brigham said. 
It is not right that they should spend so much time in the preparation of their food and the adornment of their bodies and neglect their spiritual education. Mary Isabella was reluctant to take on the responsibility. Teaching retrenchment meant encouraging women to simplify their work and standard of living. Yet women often found purpose, satisfaction, and worth in preparing fine meals and making beautiful clothing for themselves and their families. By challenging them to simplify their work, Mary Isabella would be asking them to change how they saw themselves and their contributions to the community. When I was first reading this calling to Sister Horn and just the circumstances surrounding the retrenchment plan, it made me think of Mary and Martha in the Bible mm-hmm. and how Mary's the one sitting at Jesus's feet. And Martha is very frustrated because here she is, you know, preparing and probably cooking and, and cleaning. And she even asks, Lord, don't you care that I'm just doing this all by myself? And she's just listening to you. And, you know, he says, Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And so it's just kind of reframing those priorities. Because what stood out to me in that quote that was read from the book is that the women found a lot of purpose and satisfaction and worth in this preparation and in their callings. So Lisa, how did the women respond to this and what happened next? Well, as it says in the book, Sister Horn was a little diffident about this assignment because she knew that within the patterns of life for women at that time that, like you say, there was meaning and purpose in doing these things and maybe a little bit of rivalry, maybe a little bit of an opportunity to feel good about themselves. And that may be partly what Brigham was tapping into as well, because remember, he's trying to promote a spirit of unity and cooperation in the community. In fact, there are editorials in the newspaper around this time in the Deseret News talking about how those who have more means have become extravagant, and it's causing a spirit of pride and competition and envy and creating a situation where those who have less don't feel that they can compete, they don't feel that they can be friends with those who have more. And so there's a real concern about how that's breaking down unity within the community. Lisa, tell us more about Mary Isabella Horn and her story. Mary Isabella Horn and her husband were converts from Canada. Um, I believe it was Parley Pratt who taught them clear back in the 1830s. And so they had, by this point, by 1870, they have moved with the church through the various trials and things that have happened. And she was a small woman. There's a great story that I think ought to be true if it's not, that, <laughs> that the prophet Joseph Smith said something to her once about, you're just such a dear little lady, I could pick you up and put you in my pocket. <laughs> but she was a leader. She was a leader among women in Salt Lake. And I believe at the time this call was issued was a leader in the Relief Society in Salt Lake. And so she was a really good choice for this assignment. And she took it to heart and met with some of the other Relief Society presidents in the city. 
and they formed an organization, which was what they did back then. If someone had an idea of something that needed to happen, they'd form an association or a society. And so they formed the Ladies Cooperative Retrenchment Association. And it kind of became an umbrella for Relief Society leaders to coordinate their work. There wasn't a general Relief Society presidency at this time, per se, or a Relief Society board or something like that. And so these women kind of acted informally under the auspices of retrenchment to coordinate the efforts of the Relief Society. And the emphasis was on, as Brigham had commissioned them, on simplifying, reducing expenditure, both in terms of cooking and of their clothing, which when you think about it, those were kind of the two major aspects of the household economy that women would have been in charge of and where women's activities would have made a real difference in how the family's resources were managed. So what were the results of this organization and their trying to retrench and to simplify? You know, it's hard to say in concrete terms. We don't have, you know, enough household records of finances to be able to say that they saved this much money or it made that big of a difference in this particular way in really measurable terms. It helped to establish frugality and economy as an area of emphasis, as an ethic for Latter-day Saints to live up to and for women to think about in their lives. It helped to give women opportunities to put their energies into more spiritual pursuits at a time, which I know we're talking about in these chapters around this period, at a time when the structural organization of opportunities for women in the church is really developing and taking off. It's helping to redirect their energies in that direction. The Retrenchment Association, per se, as organized by Sister Horn, persists until about the turn of the 20th century. And it becomes, like I said, more of an umbrella organization for Relief Society women to meet. And really, they have a lot of testimony meetings. They strengthen each other. But the most lasting offshoot of this original retrenchment movement was the organization of the young ladies. which grows eventually into the Young Women's Organization. And I think that's in a later chapter that we'll talk about more. Right. We're excited to learn more about that. And and that certainly is something that every ward and branch in the church, that's part of our organization today, is young women and young men, which follow that shortly. You mentioned testimony there. There's another testimony in this chapter that was touching to me. We have a missionary and his cousin who are traveling, and they stop in Kirtland. Yeah, And they meet an old friend from Volume 1, one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, Martin Harris. Can you tell us about this experience of James Crockett and William Homer? Yeah, they go into Kirtland, which is where Martin Harris is living. And, you know, after he separates from the church in the late 1830s, Harris goes through a lot of different iterations of trying to figure out his faith and affiliating with different groups. By this time, he's a pretty old man, and he's living in Kirtland and is the caretaker for the temple. By this time, Harris's family, most of them are in Utah, 
his wife and at least some of his children had crossed the plains and remained with the saints. This is his second wife, right? And this is his second wife, yes. His first wife, Lucy, that we talked so much about in the very early days of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, she actually died in 1836. And shortly thereafter, Martin married a much younger woman. Her name was Caroline Young, and she's actually a niece of Brigham Young. And they had several children together. Most of his family is in Utah. And so these two young men come into town and want to talk to him. And in the course of doing that, they issue this invitation for him to come back, come back to the saints. I love the scene that's set in the book because he says, you want to see the temple, don't you? And so they're like, yeah, if if, if you let us. And so he takes yeah. them on this tour of the temple and he's actually, you know, describing the things that the very significant things that happened in the temple. So I love how that scene is set. And knowing that, Let's listen to a clip from the book. Do you still believe that the Book of Mormon is true and that Joseph Smith was a prophet? William asked Martin. The old man seemed to spring to life. I saw the plates. I saw the angel. I heard the voice of God, he declared, his voice throbbing with sincerity and conviction. I might as well doubt my own existence as to doubt the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon or the divine calling of Joseph Smith. The testimony electrified the room. Though he came to Kirtland an unbeliever, James was thrilled by what he heard. In an instant, Martin seemed to change from a bitter old man to a man of noble convictions, inspired of God and endowed with knowledge. I love that scene also. Martin springing to life, giving his testimony, which he'd given so many times. And in another chapter, we're going to see Martin finally come west to rejoin his family. And we'll save that for another time. But it's wonderful that even in his old age, he's still committed and firm in his testimony of the Book of Mormon. On another front in the chapter, we have some really difficult things happening at the national level, and that is we got anti-polygamy legislation, the Cragen and Cullum bills that are making their way through Congress. Can you tell us about what these bills are, what they do, and what do the women of Utah do in response? After the Civil War, the federal government and just Americans in general start turning their attention westward. We've solved this problem in the East. Now we've got to get on with this manifest destiny of creating a great nation out of this continent. And what are we going to do about those crazy Mormons out in Utah. (laughs) It starts to be seen as a national problem that's got to be solved. And so while earlier there had been some attempts to pass some laws and that hadn't gone particularly far, now this is the beginning of what will become a series of increasingly harsh, increasingly punitive laws against the practice of plural marriage that are really targeted at the church and targeted at not just ending plural marriage, but at trying to wipe out the influence of the church in the government of Utah as they see it in opposition to the national government. So these particular bills that are proposed at this time feature things like stripping men who practice plural marriage of their citizenship and the possibility of imprisonment and so forth 
So in response to the prospect of these really draconian laws, Latter-day Saint women rise up in protest. As Eliza R. Snow says at one point when they are first planning these protests, she says, we need to rise up in the dignity of our calling. And this is a really important moment for Latter-day Saint women in standing up and finding their voice in a public way, speaking out in defense of their faith and of their families and of their way of life in the face of national opposition. And they're going to play a really important role in doing that for over the next couple of decades. I've been so interested to learn during this reading of saints just how much attention was given to the saints. I had no idea how much was being done at a federal level to take polygamy into their own hands. And it's amazing that the women really took it head on. So will you tell us more about this meeting that they have that they yeah. call the Great Indignation Meeting? Yeah. January 13th of 1870. Must have been a snowy night, right? Or at least very cold. And it was held in the old tabernacle, which was on the location where the assembly hall is now on Temple Square. Reports are that there was somewhere between three and 5,000 people who packed into that building. And were they and, mostly women? And they were virtually all women except for a handful of reporters. So that tells you one thing, right, that these women knew that they needed a PR aspect to what they were right, doing. And right. so these reporters were invited to come and report on this meeting. The idea of indignation meetings is not brand new. This is kind of an American tradition that when there's an issue or a law or an event or something that people don't agree with or have a problem with, that they could get together and hold these meetings that they called indignation meetings where they would express their opposition and their indignation about what was happening. In this case, the fact that it's all women doing it and all women speaking is really significant because even the idea of women speaking publicly at this time is still somewhat controversial in the United States. And then for it to be these women who are polygamous wives, who are popularly portrayed as being dupes and victims and slaves and mindless and so forth, for them to stand up and speak forcefully and articulately in their own behalf was really notable. I remember reading in the book that national newspapers picked this up. It, yeah. it, it was reprinted and talked about all over the nation. How do we measure? Was it a success? Did the message help? Or at least did it help them know these women have a voice? I think there's two ways to answer that question. In terms of affecting what happened on the national level, did it affect public opinion or legislation in any measurable way, that's hard to say. I think what it really affected was women's view of themselves and women's view of their voice and their willingness, their courage, and their determination to speak up, like I say, was really important. And so in that sense, it was a success. Now, growing out of this, I don't think we can say it's a one-to-one -one cause effect, but shortly after this meeting is held, the Utah legislature passes a law giving women the right to vote. And what's so fascinating to me is that the reason that, well, one of the reasons that women are given the right to vote is that they are under the impression that these women who are plural wives will then vote against polygamy because right. they are seen as oppressed and, and all right. of these things that you mentioned before. So I just find that quite ironic. 
It's funny, isn't it? Because in the first place, it's not like polygamy was voted in to begin with by the men, right? Right. <laughs> they, this is something they understood in a completely different way. And so at the time, the territory of Wyoming had previously passed a law giving women the right to vote. They were the first in the nation. So Utah was the second. Now, Utah held the first election, so we get the right to say that women voted first in Utah. And it was seen as, as kind of an experiment at the time. There was not a tradition of women voting, and there was a lot of uncertainty about what that would mean. And I think to the extent that polygamy was part of the calculation, as you say, those who opposed polygamy thought it would give women the opportunity to rise up and vote the men out of power that were holding them in bondage. But I think on the other hand, leaders of the church and men in Utah knew that women supported the church, supported the gospel. And so by expanding those who could vote, it actually gave the Latter-day Saints more of an electoral presence than they had had before. So there's plenty of irony all the way around in this event. Lisa, when I think of my own mother and my grandmother's they would have been at this meeting. They, they, <laughs> yeah. are, they are the type of ladies that they would have been there. And one of my favorite people in Saints Volume 1 was Amanda Barnes-Smith. Yeah. And I love that she is there and that she is so powerful in speaking that mm -hmm. she's raising shouts of, you know, affirming her message. Yeah. And then Phoebe Woodruff is just electric. And I have to share one quote here from Phoebe Woodruff from this great indignation meeting. Phoebe Woodruff condemned the United States for denying religious freedom to the saints. If the rulers of our nation will so far depart from the spirit and the letter of our glorious Constitution as to deprive our prophets, apostles, and elders of citizenship and imprison them for obeying this law, she declared, let them grant us this our last request, to make their prisons large enough to hold their wives, for where they go... We will go also. Isn't that great? It's just awesome. <laughs> yeah. In this volume of saints, we show that plural marriage was not easy and that there were times when women really struggled with it, women and men, but from women's point of view. But it also shows that Latter-day Saint women felt their primary allegiance was to the community and to the gospel. And when the chips were down, yes, they had their private struggles, but when the chips were down, they were going to gather around and defend the church and the gospel and their faith and their commitment and their way of life. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being here with us today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. In our next episode, we're going to invite Lisa back and have another discussion about Saints Volume 2. And just a reminder, you can always email us your questions and feedback at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. And make sure to read along with us at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org where you can access all the chapters and additional topics about the people and places and events that we talk about in the chapter. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. <laughs>